Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast, brought to you by Blue Box Partners, the only show dedicated to small business residential surveyors and valuers, created by surveyors for surveyors. In every episode, you'll learn something new about the vibrant and thriving industry of residential surveying. We don't mind what flavor of surveyor you are or what level of experience you might have. If you're in the business of helping people with their homes, this is the community for you. So really good to have Alexandra Anderson from RPC. What does RPC stand for? Reynolds Porter Chamberlain. There you go. So Alexandra is here today. Welcome. Thank you. We were recording this via Zoom and you look like you're in an office. You back I am, work? Yes, I am back in the office. I am the only person on this side of our building who's actually back in the office. But happily that we have now organised it so that we can have teams on and off and alternating weeks so that we can get as many people who would like to come back to the office back in if they if they would want to. And those who continue to wish to work from home, that's that's fine. That's what they'll do. It's a really tricky time, isn't it, for people working in offices? Now, a lot of surveyors listening to this podcast will sort of work from home or work for themselves and experienced it sort of different, very differently. But the the thought of getting on a train, commuting into London or, or commuting into work actually is quite scary for a lot of people. Is your office in London then? Is it quite a commute for you? It is in London, but fortunately it's Tower Bridge and I live just in Greenwich. So I can actually cycle into work in less than about, well, less than 25 minutes. So I don't have that whole debate with myself about whether I'm comfortable going on public transport. I think I would be, I think, where I have had to. So yesterday I went over to a meeting with a client over in the West End and everyone seems to be generally wearing their masks and 90% of them wearing them properly. So you do feel there's that reassurance, but it's certainly much quieter than you would expect. I'm going onto a tube train at at midday with only two other people in the carriage is is very weird, but I can understand why, particularly if you've got a long commute um, and also the cost of commuting, that might certainly put people off coming back to the office. Well, absolutely. With the price of season tickets and, and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me a bit about your career and your background. As I understand it, you deal with defect and valuation claims for surveyors, but tell me a bit more about, about that. Right. Well, I didn't have the traditional route to where I am now, it must be said. It's rather a, a case of trial and error in a way that I was doing a sabbatical at my um, university um, in the Students' Union and I didn't realise that they moved for the deadline to apply for bar finals and I wanted to be a barrister at that time. So I then, then had to find another job to, to fill a year and ended up working as paralegal at another law firm. And during that time, I made good friends with various people there, one of whom was a barrister and he had a wife who worked at RPC. And having gone through my bar finals, having qualified, having completed my pupillage, so I was a a properly qualified barrister, I was then looking around for a tenancy and having done some professional negligence work, in particular an auditor's negligence claim, that kind of introduced me to the world of professional negligence. And I'd also been doing some construction work there. So I thought, actually, this was work I really enjoyed doing. I wasn't doing it where I was at the bar, where I was doing nothing but kind of pensions and trusts and very dull stuff like that. So when that person got in contact and said, RPC are looking for someone to join, what do you think? So that's how I ended up there. That was on the 9th of February, 1998. 
and I have been there ever since. So I made partner in 2004, so that's um, 16 years ago. And I've been working doing construction claims and claims against surveyors and valuers ever since. And I think my first introduction to this type of work was working with actually property management arm of a big surveying practice. And there was, wasn't really much when I started, although we were seeing like the, the end of, of the claims from the last recession, as in the one in the kind of late 90s, I was now seeing... I anticipated there would be fallout in 2007-8 when obviously there was that massive crash. And that's when things really picked up on, on claims against valuers. And I would say probably for five years, 89% of my practice was defending claims against valuers relating to both residential and commercial valuations. So unfortunately, that gave me quite an opportunity to get quite a lot of it, <laughs> knowledge and experience in that field. Yeah. And you know, so much has, has changed since since then. I started working in a complaints and claims department just in oh, 2007, 8, 9, so where I started my background in claims and, and complaints. And the world has changed so much since then in terms of technology. I mean, I literally remember going out doing surveys and doing valuations. They weren't on the back of a fag packet, but they were on a piece of paper printed out from Quest with a highlighter pen. (laughs) There wasn't, you know, when you look back at the kind of practices that we used to do and how loose they were, um, and not necessarily that we we did them wrong, we were doing them to the best of our our knowledge and ability, I guess, but the practice around it was quite loose. Whereas now we've got things like Rightmove and the Surveyor's Comparable Tool you know, that surveyors use. But, you know, it's still just a tool. And I think there's a lot of over-reliance on, on, you know, and I've heard young valuers saying, I'm doing SCT. Like, no, you're doing evaluation. The SCT is the tool. And it'd be interesting to see, you know, not that we want claims to come in, but it'd be really interesting to see any claims that do come in, valuations that have used that, that method and whether we've actually learned the lessons and tightened up our belts in terms of our procedures and things since then, because it was a horrible time for many. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was it was just awful. And, and, and you were seeing some claims come in that you were thinking, there's just no merit to this. Claims where they were saying there's been an overvaluation of 5% on a commercial property. It's like, you must know that there is a permitted margin of error or permitted bracket to be bringing this claim. And of course, the moment you receive a claim, not only is it hugely distressing to the individual and the firm that has received this claim, but also once you notify it to your insurers, then that's a mark on your record, irrespective of the merits of the claim. And, and that fueled a lot of uncertainty and concern in the insurance market, which is now even now being reflected after Lloyd's did their review a couple of years ago and have cut back or insisted that those who are part of Lloyd's of London cut back on the amount of professional indemnity they write, including surveyors, because they weren't making enough money on it. And that, of course, is now having a huge impact for businesses who are trying to renew their policies and finding their premiums have gone through the roof. And I think in terms of the kind of risk management side of it, you're right. When people were doing valuations in the early 2000s, there wasn't anything like the ability to store and record data. And that was often one of the biggest challenges of trying to defend a claim is you received a file that was basically the letter of instruction, if you were lucky, and the valuation and not much else. And it's very difficult to persuade a judge that someone's exercised reasonable skill and care in putting together a survey or evaluation if you've got nothing there to demonstrate that they've checked the dam, that they've inspected whichever area it is that's said to have the defect, or that they've properly analyse the comparable evidence in order to come up with the valuation. Uh, it's an interesting point you make about going to right move and, and, and looking at comparables now, because actually just sticking in five bedroom property in postcode isn't necessarily going to do the job. I think a judge will want to see actually what kind of analysis have you done to work out which is the best comparable, which ones aren't actually that accurate, that helpful. So simply printing off 
putting a print off and saying, well, that's that job done doesn't necessarily protect you in the event that there is a, a claim that comes in. Mm-hmm. But at least now we do have the ability to take photographs, measurements recorded easily with whatever software packages people can have on site so that that information should be saved. And then the vital point is to store it, to make sure that you keep it in a durable medium, I think was probably Dr. Una McDonald's report put it, for I would say at least 12 years, possible up to 15 years, because that's how long you could face a claim under Section 14A of the Limitation Act. It could be up to 15 years from the date when you prepared your survey or valuation. So why not in these days of cloud storage, why not just put it there so you know it's safe, so that you know that in the event that a problem comes along, you're going to have the documents you need to be able to put up a robust defence. And you know, when you say you could get sued within the next 15 years, that's really, really depressing. And I know really puts a lot of surveyors off from doing valuation work. Through my career, I've seen that there are those that wear their surveyor hat and those that wear their valuer hat, and they sort of you know, you can tell if they sort of um, flip between the two. And you could usually guarantee that if you wore the surveyor hat, you'd have a valuation claim or, or vice versa. But it's really scary for people. So long as you've, you know, you're, you're doing your job properly, you're following through, you're keeping your records as well as you can, then you should have every confidence that you can go ahead and, and not be sued. I guess it's just when you have things like a recession and when you have big claims that come through, it sort of sends shock and awe through the industry and makes people panic. You mentioned, you know, sort of people sending through claims and and having to defend them. I remember claims coming through and you'd get half a postcode from a bank via a lawyer or whatever. You know, we think there might be a claim on a property that that you might have done sometime in the past. It's a bit like getting a cold call for one of those. I've heard you had a car accident. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) No, possibly. (laughs) And, you know, when you get those through, those time wasters, and and I think we used to call them confetti letters, you know, sort of notifications. I mean, really, for many, I guess, it's that sort of mindset of, you know, oh, they're just trying it on. Oh, just And so people, sometimes people have a mindset of, I can't be bothered with, with complaints and claims. I'm doing my job right. You know, they're just going to sue me, whatever. When actually, you know, you get sort of quite complacent about it. You know, actually, there are some that you do get wrong, you know, and uh, and that's, that's really, really tricky. You mentioned, um, you talked about negligence. There, there's a lot of people who listen to the podcast who are students. Could you explain what negligence is? Yeah, absolutely. So it's basically, if you as a professional person, are asked to provide advice to a third party, you owe them a duty of care, an obligation to make sure the advice that you give them is accurate or reasonable. So particularly with evaluation, it doesn't have to be the correct value of that property because who knows what that is. There may be any number of people who will say it's anything between X and Y, but as long as you're in the right area, then it's a reasonable figure to advise. Now, if you don't do that, if you give poor advice, wrong advice, and if the person relies on that advice and suffers a loss, then they can bring a claim against you in negligence because you have failed to discharge your duty of care to exercise reasonable skill and care is is the way it's expressed in the law. And this varies from, obviously, if you have a client, they can bring a claim for breach of contract. I asked you to do something, you didn't do it, therefore I can sue you for my losses. So negligence is slightly different, but you will often see them brought together because where you have a contract with someone, you also have a duty to do it properly and therefore they can bring a claim in contract and or taught. This is particularly significant on limitation. As I mentioned earlier, going up to the 15-year point, the limitation period for claiming contract is six years from the date you produce your report. 
and that's it. Whereas the claim, the deadline for a claim in tort is six years from the date when the loss is caused now, or the loss accrues rather. Now, for a lender, you may make a loan to a third party and that third party keeps paying off the interest on the loan. There's no, no issue there. It may be that it's only at the point at the value of the property, the actual value of the property and the value of the covenant from the borrower to keep paying falls below the level that's owed on the loan account. That's when the loss occurs. So this was a case of NIE credit, which kind of clarified for the first time actually when loss occurs for valuers claims. And it does mean that, that say you've got a, a bank lending at a, a 60% LTV and the valuation is higher than it should be, but it's still, there's enough security for that 60% LTV loan, then the loss won't occur when the loan is made. It will occur, if it does occur at all, only once the value of the property goes down sufficiently that it can't actually cover the, the amount that's due on the loan. So it's quite a, a technical point, but it's one to bear in mind that just because it's six years after your valuation doesn't mean you're definitely off the hook because they can't bring a claim in contract anymore, but they could still bring a claim in tort. And sort of talk about negligence. One of the things, you know, yeah, a surveyor doesn't go out to do a bad job. And the number of times I've seen cases where a surveyor is just, I don't know how I missed it. I don't know how I've got it wrong. And one of the things that I've always mused over is that a surveyor will, is giving an opinion. It's an opinion of value. It's opinion of the diagnosis of the defect and remedy that might need. It's a personal opinion. Therefore, it will always be subjective. And although we've got standards and rules and guidance, a lot of that guidance says you do what you think is best. So a surveyor is then left with a great weight of how do I make sure that my opinion is right and to the rest of my, <laughs> the best yeah. of my ability and in line with the average surveyor out there. And is there an average surveyor? You know, well, when I look at the range of, of people out there and their skills and their technology, you know. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the legal test for whether you've got something wrong or not is not what, what, what the average surveyor does or not even what I personally would do. This is what I do as best practice. The test is would no reasonably competent surveyor have done what that person did? And this comes back to the point I made earlier about making sure you've clearly recorded what you've done and why, because the first place a claimant will always look is the guidance notes or the red book. Did you do what it says I must do, you must do? If you've done that, and it's then a question of where you are exercising your judgment, as long as you can say, I've looked at the property, I've seen this, this is the evidence, this is what it's telling me, and this is the conclusion I'm drawing, then unless they can find another surveyor who will say, well, no reasonably competent surveyor would have ever done that, which is unlikely if you have been very clear and methodical in your decision making and you've recorded that clearly, then it's unlikely that you're going to face a claim because it, it is clear that you have done your best to exercise reasonable skill and care. And it is about that rhythm and routine of the way that you work. And yeah. I've seen that time and time again with surveyors where they would rock up to a property ready to do a home buyer survey and actually it needs to be a building survey. Yeah. And a number of times I'd phone up a surveyor and say, you know, we've got a claim, tell them the property. Like, yeah, do you know what? I just knew there was something not right about, about that one. And surveyors don't trust they've got instincts of whether they should do the job or not, whether they need to pause, whether they need a bit more time. Do you see that in any of the claims that you've dealt with? Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, interesting you raised the point about what type of survey, because that was exactly one of the issues that was raised in the heart and heart against large claim. And on that particular issue, the court found in favour of Mr. Large on the basis that they concluded that it wasn't, that it wasn't wrong to continue using a HBR. 
um, that was fine. Um, but it does the, the case does make it clear that you are an, under an obligation to keep thinking about that point. What, what I'm seeing, does that tell me I ought to be saying, actually, you need a full building survey or, or you need further investigations at a particular point? So, so that's very much an issue that, that surveyors should be keeping in mind when they are doing evaluation or, or, or indeed a survey. So I've, I've lost the thread of the original point you were having uh, to heart and lodge. <laughs> well, well, you know, just on that. So just ask you about that, actually. So with the deciding on the whether it should be a home buyer or not, that goes all the way right until you issue the report. At any point until then, you can change your mind, can't you? Yes. I mean, it's it's only really once you've got to inspect the property and think about the any potential issues that you've seen there that you have an opportunity to reflect and say, actually, I think this, this needs a, a greater level of inspection mm. of, of care in order to ensure that I'm discharging my duties to this particular client. And, and I think often people think because the paperwork's been done, the application's in, or, you know, we don't want to upset the admin ladies <laughs> in the background or my turnaround time, that yeah. they don't feel that they can say, whoa, stop hang on a minute, this is a tricky property, the comps are a nightmare and it's having the confidence but also having the the structure within your business, whether that's corporate or, or a small firm, just to put the brakes on because that's yeah. really when you need to do that. But the question uh, or the question I was asking was about um, surveyors trusting their gut instinct. Yeah, and being prepared to uh, avoiding pressure from clients. I mean, that is mm. something that we've certainly seen and, and some of the valuations I know was an interesting feature of the Titan Collier's case that I had, had unfortunately had to take to the Court of Appeal to get the right decision. But one of the points that was raised against us was it looked as though there had been pressure on the client to come up with a figure that met the lending criteria, as it were, so that the loan could go ahead. And any kind of pressure that can be demonstrated is likely to really concern a judge in the event the case ever comes before a judge about does it look like you've acted with complete impartiality have you been pressured into trying to up the value in order for the loan to go ahead? And this was particularly at the time at the height of the securitisation market where lenders just wanted the value as high as possible so they could then sell the loan off to a third party. So that can sometimes be an issue. Also, timescales for maybe a borrower rushing to get something done so they can refinance at a particular timescale or being asked to readdress a report when you don't actually know who your new client is. And that exposes you to a claims from a person you may have no proper relationship with, no contract with. I mean, if you'd agreed terms and conditions that limit or exclude liability, that will all be gone if you simply readdress the report to a third party without ensuring your contractual terms are updated to include them. So there are all these risks that can come about from being pushed into doing something without having proper time to reflect that are really important for, for surveyors to bear in mind. And you mentioned their terms of engagement and Oh, I see various, varying quality of terms of engagement. And I see a lot of surveyors asking their mates, have you got any terms I can borrow? Mm -hmm. The RICS issues guidance, or I think they may have issued a, an example or terms of engagement, actually. I'll have to, have to check with part of their new home survey standards. Yes. yes, they have, yes. So is that enough for a surveyor to use in their business? What else do they need to do? But it certainly forms the, a good starting template. It includes everything that you should be thinking about before you engage with the client. But of course, you have to think about what you're actually including in there. If you're putting in a limit of liability, particularly when you're dealing with a consumer, it's unlikely to be enforceable if it's just part of your standard terms. It needs to be separately negotiated. There needs to be a proper conversation with the client about 
what the effect of this limit will will actually be to them so that they can be absolutely sure that they're taking an informed decision as to whether they sign up to those terms. Because otherwise you might, well, might as well not bother because it will not be enforceable. But there are various other clauses that, that you need to make sure your clients are aware of both B2B and B2C, making sure that they are aware of the impact of what you're requiring. And it may be that you need to take a different approach depending on who you're working with. And obviously, with certain of the big lenders, you don't get to put your terms and conditions in at all because they've just got their their, their kind of bulk agreement that probably goes to their panel manager and you just get what you're given, as it were. But it is very important in each case, not just simply say, I've printed off this document that's got kind of all the boilerplate terms there, that you do actually think carefully about what you're including to make sure it is appropriate and will also be enforceable in the event you need to rely on it. Yeah, it's, it's really important that surveyors actually understand the terms of their business and all the component parts and what, what they're there for. One of the things that I've been looking at recently, just because I do as I browse the internet, is readability and how easy it is to read documents. And the average reading age in the UK is something like 10 or 11, which will get you through a Harry Potter book. Yeah. doesn't necessarily mean you'll understand, you know, or, or how to spell some of the big words of he who must not be named. Yeah. But I was looking at the readability of, so some firms have their terms on their websites and the age that would come out would be sort of 17, 18, you know, a grade 12, I think it was something like that. So the average 18-year-old should be able to easily understand them. But if we know the average reading age in the UK is a lot less, we know that a lot of people have um, English as a second language, not a, not a first language, then do we really need to make sure that things like terms and our understanding of the product that, or the customer's understanding of the product and service that we're they're providing, that, that they really un- understand it? And so it starts off with terms. How do we simplify that when actually... You know, you're in the legal profession, you probably like lots of words, you know, how do we not skim it down, but how do we make it more accessible to people? Because if we don't understand them fully and properly, our customers really can't understand them fully and properly. And we're meant to be there to help them rather than just defend, defend, defend all the time. Absolutely. And actually, if you can get the terms and conditions right in advance and ensure that your customer really understands what they say, then you're far less likely to end up in a claim because everyone will know exactly what was expected of you and where you're coming from and what you're doing and what the limitations were. So it is really important to make sure that your client can understand it. There is a certain amount where you can never simplify it down to kind of Janet and John book level and it it (laughs) can't be done. But what you can do is you can think about what's going to be really important to this client. What what are they really looking to get out of it? And actually having that conversation with your client in advance to to understand what's really important to them. Is there something about this property that is particularly important to them that they're going to really care about? Or is this just a lender with its commercial transaction and they just want to know what the bottom line number is? But certainly when you're dealing with people who are investing, probably is the biggest investment of their life in a property, they want to know that they're in safe hands. And actually having those early conversations, finding out what the important issues are, and then making sure even if you do have a two or three page terms and conditions, reflecting that in your covering letter, your engagement letter, saying these are the points that are important to you. This is what I'm going to do. And by the way, we have agreed that if something does go wrong, my liability will be limited in whatever way. But making sure that you've discussed that, they've understood what you're doing, not trying to hide behind legalese, but making it really upfront. Then even if something does go wrong, as I say, you're infinitely more likely for a judge to say, I can see you've absolutely done what you should do. You have worked with these people 
you've tried to explain to them what the contract means and therefore I find that you can rely on its terms. That's the important part. It comes back to that whole customer experience. And for me, that's how I, you know, through the claims work that I did, that's how I I started to look at it more positively, you know, rather than defending, actually, how can we prevent a lot of these things happening? And you're right. Yes, it's getting that, that cliche of a customer journey right at the start. But there are some really basic things like absolutely asking and talking to the customer. They're not scary, but asking them what are they most worried about? And they may list off a reel of things that would, that would be warning bells as to whether it should be a building survey or a, or a home buyer. That's the first clue. But also as you write the report or, you know, when you talk to them again, you can cover off those things and you're offering reassurance of those niggly things that would, would might have worried them that, you know, and that all prevents, you know, them coming back with the claim in the future. But I think also in, in thinking about the different modalities in that not everybody will look at a document and be able to read it like the average reading age, but some people absorb and understand better when you talk to them. Yeah. And surveyors, you know, lots of them just don't like doing that or they're fearful of it, you know, but it, it makes the difference. Whenever I used to look at, and I see it now with surveyors when they share their testimonials, the icing on the cake for a customer is talking to a real life surveyor, you know, and you don't have to tell them jokes or any razzle dazzle, you know, um, <laughs> but it's speaking to that professional who's given them that reassurance. And you can absolutely do that without saying, yes, buy this house or, or do not buy this house, you yeah. know. So making sure they, they do that. The challenge then for many surveyors is, uh, what I've, I've, I've heard some surveyors say is, yeah, but what I say to them or what I put in the report are different and they shouldn't be. They should always be absolutely the same. Absolutely. What do you think about having those conversations recorded or now as we are with COVID and the, and the world, you know, actually FaceTime or video calls are a great tool for, I don't know why more surveyors aren't doing it because people will pay for it, but you know, 20 minute, half an hour recorded call where a customer can ask questions with a real life surveyor. You know, but what, what are the, your thoughts around recording those conversations? I think it's a good idea. Obviously, you have to bear in mind the requirements of the general data protection regulations and making sure that you've got their consent to you recording information about them. Um, And there's a question of how long you can keep that again under GDPR. But subject to making sure you're meeting those requirements, I think it's a brilliant idea because the more information you have got to demonstrate in the event that something goes wrong that you really have done the best job for these people and you have explained any issues you have gone over the problems of course it can be a two-edged sword because if you didn't then it will be clearly recorded for everyone to see that that you didn't but I would hope that anyone who would accept if they have made an error, I mean, that's why we have PI insurance to protect us because no one is infallible but at least where you have done the right thing you can absolutely be sure of, of having a really robust evidence to prove that's the case. And I have to say, having dealt with lots of different types of complaints and claims over the years, there is nothing better than getting a really horrible, messy complaint, opening up the file and seeing that the surveyor has just even made some random notes on their thoughts, because it just lets you, it gives you that reassurance that you've got something, (laughs) even if you're grasping at straws, something that you can go back on that said, that shows the surveyor thought about something, they considered something, they had some rationale, even if the rationale was totally wrong, at least they've they've shown and they've demonstrated there's nothing, I mean, I know you said it before, there's nothing worse than a, a blank file. Yeah. You know, and you're expected to be a mind reader 
to understand where, you know, how these comps actually fit. And so many times there's lots of valuation cases, isn't there, where the rationale, you know, has made made a, a big difference. Just on that, can I ask you about, again, and there'll be some trainee surveyors and valuers here who, who don't fully understand, but sort of margin of error. Yes. A lot of surveyors have talked about, you know, it's within 10%, it's fine. The lenders used to give some some lenders used to give some guidance. We want it within a valuation range. Could you explain a bit about about that and some of the challenges? Yeah. So, um, and the the kind of main guidance that the courts have given is a case of KS Lincoln against CBRE Hotels, where I acted on behalf of CBRE, and I'm delighted to say that the claim was dismissed. But the judge in that case basically decided, whilst it wasn't necessary because we were dealing with the hotel, to give guidance on what he thought the, the appropriate margin of error or bracket should be. So if you're looking at a kind of a, a I say bog standard, a, a maybe a, a one flat within a block, there should be plenty of comparable evidence to help you make your decision, then the margin will be around 5%. If you're looking at other residential property that is fairly standard, there's nothing extremely unusual or extraordinary about it. It's not a particularly big property. It doesn't isn't in a particularly unusual location. It doesn't have other facilities that might affect the value. Then you're probably looking at plus or minus 10%. When you're looking at commercial property, that's when you can get to much larger margins. And that's partly around the uncertainty of, say, you're doing a valuation on a fair maintainable trade or EBITDA valuation, or how how certain can you be that the historic information you've got is going to be replicated in the future. That's particularly true at the moment. I mean, trying to do, I pity any value who's trying to work out how you do that kind of trading valuation on what we've got now. And I understand we've got certain companies who are trying to put forward EBITDA the EBITDA with COVID tied in as a figure that you should be doing valuations on, which I would think I would be very concerned about. So for those ones, it can be a much greater margin of error. I mean, if you're doing, say, a development appraisal, um, and you've got to put in what you think your development costs are going to be. You've got to put in margin of the profit for the developer might be fairly simple. You've got to work out how much you're going to sell each different unit for. There are lots of different moving parts to that that mean you should be getting a, a much higher margin of error um, or permitted bracket, maybe 20 or even possibly 25%. I did have one case where it was agreed right from the outset that a 25% margin was perfectly reasonable for this this valuation. And there was a case, a Capita Drivers Jonas case, where the judge found that if you've got different moving parts in evaluation or different aspects of the valuation, then you might apply a margin of error to each of them. And once you accumulate those margins, then you can come to quite a big variation that would be perfectly acceptable in terms of a range from X to Y that would be a non-negligent valuation. But it is, it's the court that decides what the margin should be. Obviously, they will listen to the experts who are instructed. They'll listen to the submissions that are made, but it's up to them to decide what that would be an appropriate margin in terms of, of how far they think there can be a variance from whatever they consider the true valuation to be, again, based on expert evidence. And do you think with better, more accurate data from the likes of the right move, surveyors comparable tool, that that margin of error is likely to reduce? It may do, but there's obviously a risk where you're doing ABMs on ABMs on ABMs that actually you lose sight of what the original data was. And there will always be properties that are unusual. There may be some kind of issue with them. There may be a a lack of repair or something that you can't really reflect from simply saying, this is number two, Acacia Terrace, that must be number four, Acacia Terrace must be the same kind of price. So I think there will always be a risk in simply saying, well, 
because we've got lots of evidence, obviously the, the margin gets smaller and smaller. Each case has to be judged on its own particular facts. But there is, as it becomes easier, hypothetically easier mm. to value or as, become, as the process becomes more automated, then I'm sure, certainly from a claimant's point of view, they will be arguing for the, the lowest margin possible. Yeah, absolutely. I guess the key lesson is if you've got a valuation where you're outside a 5 or 10% range is to think about why that is, yeah. <laughs> make some clear notes, but also to check with others. If you work in a, in, a, in a small practice, check with your colleagues. If you work for one of the corporates, they'll undoubtedly have some kind of red flag system that comes up on their automated systems. But if you work for yourself, it's to looking at your network of people and having people that you can just talk to and 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 you know, obviously be careful over the details and, and, and all of that. But it's having that network, that sounding board, isn't it? And I think that's what a lot of us lack. We used to be in the office, we'd talk to the gang about what we've seen that day, you know, what we're thinking about value. You know, and I guess we sort of lost that. But if you're worried, it's just the pause. Trust your gut instinct and know that something's not quite right and, and put the brakes on. It's hard to do in a commercial world, though, when there's there's lots of pressure. But it's really important that we do that. Just on the on that valuation side then, material uncertainty. So yeah. this is something that I know the RICS has issued out some a paragraph to use, and I know you've been involved in that. Could you explain a bit about what that means? Well, it basically puts up a flag to the recipient of the valuation to say, this is what we think the valuation is, but there is a, a very strong chance that our valuation could be wrong simply because there is so much uncertainty in the market at the moment. And I know that the RSS have now withdrawn it for almost all residential valuations. I think for HMOs, they're still suggesting it should be used. And I am sometimes a bit concerned that people might think, well, I'll just stick in the serial uncertainty clause and that will cover me. I actually am a big advocate for further explanation. What is it particularly about this class of asset that you think may mean that there is uncertainty in your valuation? And I think, again, to show that you've exercised skill and care, the more you can say, rather than just saying, right, put the clause in, tick box, done, actually saying it is because it's it's a retail asset and obviously analysis of the retail market at the moment, everyone knows it's not the happiest place to be. Mm -hmm. um, but whatever kind of asset you're dealing with, just applying a bit of thought and including a bit of your analysis in the report, because the more you do that, the more it's going to be very hard to establish the thoughts you put down on paper, ones that no reasonably competent surveyor could have or value could have, have, have had. So I think it, it's very helpful. And I will hope that we will not see claims where concerning evaluation where the material uncertainty clause has been used because it will have flagged. The judge will say, well, it tells you there that it's a bit risky here. So I would hope that that will be the case. Um, but I always think that we can do as much as possible to protect our position by being as, as clear um, as possible about what we're thinking of in terms of risks and, uh, and potential causes of that uncertainty. Mm. And if you, you're doing a private valuation, then you've got space in the report to write that. But a lot of lenders have standard reports, tick boxes, uh, or yeah. very limited space to write anything else. How should a surveyor tackle that? But it is very tricky. And when you've got just the standard form, you can't put disclaimers, you can't do anything like that. I think the only thing you can do is, is whether it's through the plan manager or direct, you, you need to lay down a trail of correspondence that says, your form does not allow me to say this, but this is what you should be aware of. So that at least in the event that they bring a claim and they say, well, your form doesn't say anything, it's like, yes, 
as you well know, <laughs> it couldn't. But here's the letter I wrote that, or the email that I sent or a, a note, even a note of the telephone conversation I had, preferably followed up by email, that I explained to you what the situation is here and why you need to be more, maybe more cautious than you were because of that uncertainty. Yeah, and, and just on that, so when a lender gets a, a report back, they might have a query, we call it PVQs, post-valuation queries. And I was a real advocate for a reverse PVQ. So coming <laughs> in the way that there's no room in the report to say whatever it is you needed to say. And sometimes the guidance is quite woolly. It is through streams of paper and online online documents. And that's really where, you know, yes, you can send that that sort of PVQ, reverse PVQ back, but you've got to make sure that it's going to the right place and the right person will see it. And the problem is, you know, you've got big departments with admin people in and lenders, you know, scattered all over the country. It's really hard. But at least if you're you either don't do it and you and you flag it if it's that serious or you put your thoughts down and, and send it back. Because it's important, you know, if the, the problem with lenders' forms is that, yes, it helps the efficiency for the majority go through, but not every property will fit and not every situation will fit. And you've got to protect yourself at the end of the day, you know, but, but to get that, get that message back. You've got to look after your practice. You've got to look after yourself. So do what you can to do that. Mm. Can I ask you about cladding? Yes. The EWS1 form. Yeah. Yeah, really tricky. So for those listening, learning lots today, those who've um, <laughs> who are newbies to the industry, but the EWS form is, uh, as I understand it, it's a form that's been introduced that confirms that a property does not have the cladding, which you know is is a fire risk essentially. But there's not enough surveyors or people to do it. You know, tell me a bit more about your understanding of of that. Yeah, I mean, well, well, the history of it, I mean, I don't, everyone knows about Grenfell. Uh, what they may not be so aware of is, is the way the goalposts have moved in terms of the building regulations and in terms of fire safety since then. And you may say, why did it take that tragedy to get the government to think about whether the building regulations were fit for purpose? That is another matter. The point is, though, that since then, there have been a number of advice notes that have come out, and particularly advice note 14. There was a change to the building regulations that bans combustible materials on a residential building of over 18 metres. But advice note 14 made it clear that the, the government MHCLG was also looking at, at, at lower-rise buildings. The problem was that valuers were quite rightly when asked to go and value say a, a flat in a in a large block seeing that there was cladding there they knew that there was concern particularly about that time about acm the um, composite material panels knowing that they had were likely the cause of what happened at grenfell and therefore they were saying well i can see this properly i can tell you what it's worth but what i can't tell you is what's on the outside and if there's going to have to be some remedial work to this building and I can't tell you what that's going to cost. And therefore, I can't tell you whether it's going to have a material impact on value. And that was the real problem. And, and there's been a lot of press coverage about how the EWS1 form has caused a block in the mortgage market. That block was there before. What the EWS1 form is actually doing is creating a way to try and get through that blockage. Because 
not having an adequate assessment of the external wall surface, EWS, of the property meant that valuers could not value or happen to say, I have to value on the special assumption and query whether you can even do that if you know there's cladding and you think there may well be, I don't know, K15 behind the, the cladding. Can you even do it on a special assumption? They'd have to say, I don't know what this, this property can be worth. I, I can't just help you in this case. So in UK Finance, the BSA and the RICS got together with various stakeholders and we had a discussion about kind of document we could put together. And this went through several iterations over a number of months because each time the government moved the goalpost again, we had to have another think. I mean, for example, the Bulking Riverside fires that people may have heard of, where someone decided it would be really clever to have a, a barbecue on their wooden decking balcony with obvious disastrous consequences. And as a result, an undated Unsigned, and basically, sudden some of advice notes suddenly comes out from MHCLG. So it's unlawful to have combustible materials on a balcony at any height, not even over 18 meters. So suddenly, we're having to go and reinvent this form to deal with that. So the form was finally, I think it came out in about December of last year, and it was always intended that it should apply for buildings over 18 metres. Again, there's been some press coverage saying it's been extended. It, it never has formally been extended. It's just that some lenders are now saying. If it's a multi-occupancy residential property of any height, please will use the EWS1 form. The problem is that it's divided into two sections. So section A is all about, is it safe? Do we think there is the external wall materials are unlikely to support combustion is the term it uses. And anyone who is qualified to understand what materials have been used and can inspect to see whether there is proper fire stopping as in no gaps, that sort of thing, they're competent to sign off on part A. The problem is if you get to option B, then you need someone who has got proper fire safety experience, who can say what materials are there, why they're at risk and, and what else might be required. So you need a signatory who's got a proper expertise in the assessment of fire risk presented by the cladding materials. And they probably need to, and they do actually, need to be a member of a relevant professional body that deals with fire safety. And there yeah. are a limited number of them. Um, yeah, and, and our ICS have actually issued something out about that, that yeah. they do need, you do need to be properly qualified. And if you are relying or using one of these forms to check and verify it, yeah. that it has come from a, from a reliable source. Yeah, and that is one of the risks that I think it was actually last week, the 1st of September, the RICS put out a specific note on make sure that these forms have been signed by the right people. And there is a risk for valuers if you rely on an EWS1 form that without checking that it is a legitimate form, then the value, oh, sorry, the lender might bring a claim against you for failing to check that. Because if, if it turns out that that form was a fraud and the signature on it is Enid Blyton, maybe she was a qualified fire engineer, <laughs> but I doubt it, then they are going to say, why did you not check that? That's the one thing we would expect you to check on the EWS1 form. Mm. Can I ask you about new builds? Yes. It's a bit of a passion irritation of mine, the quality of new build. I see so many, and our surveyors do as well, so many poor quality new build homes. You know, you, we see it on the TV. Yes, you've got the persimmon situation, but, you know, it, that's the icing on the cake uh, for many of it. Lenders have valuations done. They're normally off plan. The surveyors or valuers and the lenders don't often see the property and it's not completed to a good finished standard. Some of the repairs that are required later um, aren't great. And I know we've got the new homes ombudsman now, which is, is set up. But for me, that all seems very after the fact in that someone have moved into a property. It's very stressful to live, yeah. into, live in a home with a defect. 
if you think about the things that go on in your life, it's very stressful. And therefore to raise it and to go through an ombudsman, which can take years, it can take a long time for things to be raised. One of the discussion that often comes up in the Surveyor Hub Facebook group that we have is poor quality new build homes. And actually, should we be valuing with them for purchase? You know, should, if we know that a development is poor and isn't great, actually, are we just fueling the situation by rubber stamping a, a valuation that comes through? And at what point do we say, actually, no, well, either no personally, I know a lot of surveyors have actually said, I'm, I'm not doing new build anymore because of the problems with it, because ethically they don't think it's right. But at what point do we say no? Because otherwise it's just going to keep continuing. These poor people are going to be living in these homes of poor quality. I mean, it's interesting you raised that point because I know that there are two different groups, one through the RICS and another one, which I think is being led by the BPSA, where they're looking to put together a proper snagging inspection report. And certain of the house builders, to be fair, have been very good at this. They've understood that it gives them a competitive advantage to actually hand over a house that isn't riddled with defects. Obviously, the issue for a value is if you're being asked to do a mortgage valuation, then unless it's impacts on value, then it, it doesn't matter. The property is what it's worth. It's very frustrating for the consumer when they move into their house and find that half the light switches don't work. But if, if the electrics themselves were all right, then actually, and, and even then, would that be something that would impact on value? So I think it is very tricky. And I don't think that, that surveyors and valuers should be the, the gatekeepers, as it were, of the quality of building. It is for the house builders to get their act together. And I do think that, that we can work with them. I mean, it's awful when you hear about the house builders who won't actually allow people to, onto sites to inspect a property, no doubt because they know that the quality of build is not great. And as I say, I think a lot of them have now realised that they really need to pull their socks up, not least because of the ombudsman there. But you're right, it would take some time to go through that process. But I'm not sure it's necessarily for a valuer to say, I'm not going to value because the property has a value. If they feel that way, absolutely. But that, that's a commercial mm -hmm. choice for them. But I don't see there's any reason why they can't say, it, as long as the property has been built, it's structurally okay. And, and a lot of the, the, the snags that you hear really are truly snags. And therefore, they're really not going to impact on value. Yeah. And I guess that's that inner turmoil that you have, because no, they don't always affect value, but it is really distressful for a homeowner. And it comes back, I guess, to that valuer versus surveyor hat that we wear. And actually that we're there to act in the best interest of the public, to help them have homes that, you know, that they can live in, that's safe, warm, dry, and they're not going to worry about them, them falling down. Yeah. I actually started my career at, as um, working for a developer, uh, used to be called Lang Homes many, many years ago. And I remember they brought in a sort of a new customer experience journey they had snagging and, and all of those and they really took it seriously and at the time which was you know 20 years ago now they were premium they were selling a premium product and they really saw the benefits of that and I look back at those days and for me that's where my customer experience understanding started I guess but also just how forward thinking they were or the part I worked in at the time that they could see the benefit of actually getting it right first time and not having the problems after. But look, Alex, it's been fantastic to talk to you today. I feel like I've had a masterclass of law, compliance, complaints, valuation, that I'm going to log as CPD. But thank you very much for your time. I really, really do appreciate you're, it. You're welcome. Well, I hope the legal bits weren't too tedious. But uh... Well, do you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to check the readability of the blog. <laughs> I do have to. <laughs> but no, that's really good. Thank you. Thank you very thank you much, much Elle. 
You've been listening to the Surveyor Hub podcast. We'd love it if you leave a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you want to find out more about how we're making a difference, visit us at blueboxpartners.com. Thank you.